returning to God as it would be we sometimes have difficulty in really defining what tshuva is and the reason for our difficulty in defining what tshuva is is because there's no realness to tshuva unless there's some kind of realness to Judaism as a whole after all what tshuva is is a return to the ways and to the dictates of Judaism and the goals of Judaism and therefore to the degree that we understand what Yiddishkeit is really all about what Judaism is all about it's to that degree that tshuva is a real phenomenon in our lives and it means something to the degree that we don't know what Yiddishkeit really is intended to be so tshuva can't be any more meaningful than the Yiddishkeit that we, uh, we perceive in our minds and that's why sometimes some of the things that we know about or we witness in the phenomena of a Jew returning to Yiddishkeit seem to be rather awkward to us and that we lack an appreciation of it and I figured that now that we are between the Rosh Hashanah Yom Kippur in the period of time which is called Aseris Yemei Tshuva preparing for that day upon which there is a special mitzvah to do tshuva it would be worthwhile to define exactly what does tshuva accomplish in terms of our total relationship to HaKadosh Baruch to God when we talk about tshuva the, the Torah when the Torah talks about tshuva the place where we could see some of the effects of tshuva would be on the day of Yom Kippur being that the day of Yom Kippur is a day of slicha, it's a Yom Slicha, it's a day of forgiveness and obviously the day of forgiveness in the last word of the Talmud is that the day has no forgiveness in it without tshuva that complements it tshuva im yam hakipurim tshuva with the day of Yom Kippur is what affords a person forgiveness so we would look to a description of what Yom Kippur does to us as Jews to know what tshuva does or we would at least know what the combination of tshuva and Yom Kippur does for us and from there get some hints to what tshuva is all about and the Torah says it very clearly the Torah says upon this day I will make a kapara whatever kapara means we'll explain that in a moment and to purify you and you will have that purity in front of God so the, the Torah is, is being very specific about what the day of Yom Kippur is. It's a day of kapara. It's a day of kapara, whatever that means. A day of tahara, of purity. And both of those conditions ultimately lead to the person standing in his state of purity in front of God. Ki hazeh which is the word kapara. Letayir eskom seems to be an additional dimension of purity and in front of God you will stand in that purity what is the definition of kapara and what is the definition of tahara what are the definitions well the word kapara is usually defined into English to be a day of atonement a day of forgiveness but the most accurate definition though it might not sound as fancy the most accurate definition is the one that Rashi gives us that the word kapara is miloshen kinuach it's from the language of wiping something away 
What are we wiping away? By virtue of the fact that we've done things against God's will in the past year, there is a certain amount of accountability. There's a certain amount that we would technically have to pay back for, for going against God's will. The day of Yom Kippur is a day that a person has with tshuva and through the experience of the day a way of wiping away the penal code for his behavior of the last year. A person uh, commits armed robbery. Armed robbery is 20 years in prison. If we would have an example of that in Averos, the day of Yom Kippur would absolve the person of his 20-year sentence. You broke a law, you broke God's will in this particular case. There are certain punishments for whatever reason those punishments are that way and what they are to accomplish we're not going to speak of right this moment. But whatever it is, a person has a debt to pay. And the day of Yom Kippur wipes away the debt. That's what the word kapara means. Now, but that's only kapara. But the verse, the Pasuk goes on to say, L'tahir eskem, to purify you. And this introduces another dimension. The, and what it is that we're talking about when we talk about purity is the following. Whatever a person does, be it positive or negative, lives on even after the action is over. There's no such thing that a person says that the action exists for as long as it's being done. And the moment that it's over, it's gone, forgotten, goodbye. It's not like that. The way a person is made and the, the way a person operates and the way a person is affected is in a way that by what he does, there is a lasting mark to greater degrees, to smaller degrees, but there is a mark that's made by everything that a person does, both in a positive sense and in a negative sense. And we can't convince ourselves as much as we would like to that since I'm stopping, the thing is over. It's not. The action does something, and if the action does something, it has an effect, and that effect has made a mark. When we talk in a positive way, in positive senses, and we say that a person does mitzvahs, and he does what is God's will for him to do, we say that he unleashes many spiritual potentials of his neshama, they come out of their hidden sources, they become more real than just potentials of existence, he becomes spiritually sensitive, spiritually more alert. He feels connection. He wants more connection. Something's happening to him as a human being. Sometimes it's more subtle than other times. Sometimes it's more obvious to the person. But something is always happening. On the other hand, when a person engages in behavior that's negative, so we talk about two conditions. We talk about a condition which is called Pagam Haneshama and Timtum Hale, and a second condition which is called Timtum Halev. What are those two conditions? Pagam Haneshama means that there is a flaw or a blemish that is created in the soul of man, which to define in a more real sense would mean that the person hurts his spiritual potentials, he handicaps his spiritual pool, and it doesn't function and operate and pump out the energy in the same normal, healthy fashion that it would up to this point. That's the soul's blemish. And then there's a second condition which is called timtum halev, which really means an insensitivity towards spiritual value. 
And when a person engages in negative behavior, sooner or later, it creates a damage in that spiritual pool, which is called the Pekam HaNeshama, and it also creates a certain insensitivity or a lack of alertness in terms of spiritual value or spiritual perception. Ultimately, that damage or handicap in the spiritual pool and the lack of spiritual alertness eventually leads the person down a road that one thing leads to the next and one and another and another and another. As it says in the Ethics of Our Fathers, Avera Gareris Avera, one wrongdoing brings on another and another brings on another. And the reason why this is so is not just because, oh, I'm doing wrongs, so I might as well pile it all up and do it all together. But what it really is, is the outgrowth of the handicapped spiritual pool. It's the outgrowth of the insensitivity and the lack of spiritual alertness. And once you have that condition, it becomes fertile ground for yet another thing which is incongruent with my spiritual potential to happen. And one thing leads to the next, and what the person becomes is a spiritual dodo. Becomes dull in a spiritual way. He doesn't feel what the whole issue is all about. Ultimately, what this means is that a machitza, that a, a wall is being built slowly but surely between himself and God. The alertness is not there. The abilities are handicapped. I don't sense the connection. I don't have what to dip into in order to make the bridge between myself and God. And slowly what is coming up is a, is a wall. A mechitza beini ubeinai. A wall, a division between myself and God. And when we talk about tshuva, we are not only talking about tshuva that deals with the level of forgiveness for punishment. But ultimately what we speak of when we talk about the condition and the optimum condition of tshuva is where the person has the opportunity through tshuva and through Yom Kippur to regain his spiritual alertness, to be able to take off the handicaps from the spiritual pool, and ultimately that he should be able to make a connection again with God as he had it before he damaged his potentials. Now, the condition in which the person's spiritual pool is handicapped, and when he lacks the spiritual alertness that he had till this point, this is the state of being which is called the state of spiritual impurity. Why is the person impure? The reason why the person is impure is because there is a lack of, a, of an authentic flow of energy into this person. He's lacking the total alertness. He's tumptum. He, he doesn't know if he's coming or if he's going. And in spiritual senses, he's, he's not... Uh, you'll excuse the expression, he's not a true breed of a, spir- of, of, of a spiritual entity at this point because he's handicapped the spiritual pool. He doesn't feel the alertness of spiritual value. He doesn't perceive spiritual goals. That's the state of impurity that we speak of. Therefore, when the verse says, Ki aleichem, the first thing that this Torah is telling us is that you should know that the day of Yom Kippur affords a person a wipe away of those things that would be punishments for him for what he's done wrong. But that's not enough. Shuva has another dimension. Yom Kippur has another dimension. The dimension of the person regaining spiritual alertness, spiritual sensitivity. 
a spiritual pool that functions normally, that when I turn to it, it will respond and give me the energy to be able to take up the next step in my spiritual growth. And that's the Lataher Eschen. That's the second level of purity. So there are two things in Yom Kippur. There's one element in Yom Kippur with tshuva, which is kapara. Move away, take away the detrimental punishment, the accountability. Then there's the second level of Lataher Eschen, to purify oneself of the negative elements that have become part of the system by, by this wall going up between me and God. And ultimately, the condition of Yom Kippur is one, that the end of the system is Lefnei Hashem Titaru, that I can stand in my purity in front of God again. I don't have to hide. I don't have difficulty seeing Him. I don't have difficulty perceiving the direction that I'm going in. I know what I want, and I want to come closer. That's what the verse is describing. Now, what I'd like to do is I would like to show you many examples of what the difference is between these two aspects. I think it's rather clear, but I want to show you in how many different areas of how we understand tshuva, this difference between kapara and taira makes so much of a difference. Let's start from the beginning. I mentioned at the beginning that there's a dispute in the Talmud between Rebbe and the Rabbanin, two people in the Talmud, if the day of Yom Kippur, all on its own, even without a person returning to God, affords a person forgiveness. This is a raging dispute in the Talmud. Any of you that are looking to get away with just the Yom Kippur experience without tshuva, let it be known that the final word in the Talmud is that you need tshuva with Yom Kippur. Too bad, that's the way we paskin. That's the final analysis. But one thing is clear. Even Rebbe, that says that the day of Yom Kippur affords a person kapara even without the experience of tshuva that is only in the dimension of Yom Kippur that removes my being accountable with a penal code for what I've done wrong. But even Rebbe that says that the experience of Yom Kippur itself does something for a person it is only within the sense of kapara. But the second level of the purity of spiritual alertness, of removing the handicap from the spiritual pool. This is something that there is no way in the world, even with the greatness of Yom Kippur, that it can happen without the person asking for it, without the person doing a tshuva to make it happen. Let's give another example of the difference between Kapara and Tara. There's a very perplexing Yerushalmi. That's the Talmud that was written in Jerusalem. The Yerushalmi says the following thing. Prophecy was asked. The quality of prophecy was asked the following question. A person that sins, what should his punishment be? This was a question that was lodged at the school of prophecy. And the school of prophecy came up with an answer. The person that sins, let him die. Then another question was asked. The same question was presented to the Torah. The school of Torah was asked, the person that sins, what should his punishment be? And the Torah responds, and the Torah says, let him bring a sacrifice and he'll have a forgiveness in that way. And then, and then they directed the question to God, and they asked God, 
The person that sins, what is his punishment? And God's answer is, Let him do tshuva and he will be forgiven. Now this piece of Gemara is very, very difficult to understand for many reasons. First of all, when we say that we ask the school of prophecy, what is the lot of the person that sins? And the answer that comes back is, out. He, Thomas, let him die. I don't understand. First of all, it's prophets throughout our history that told us to do tshuva. And all of a sudden, when we ask this innocent question, what is the lot of the sinner? All of a sudden, the prophet becomes very critical and says, he, Thomas, let him go six feet under. What kind of an answer is that? Prophecy talks from beginning to end about doing tshuva. And when the question is asked to prophecy, what is the lot of the of the one that sins, the answer is he, Thomas. A second point that's difficult to understand is that dying doesn't help either. Because if a person dies without tshuva, he also doesn't have forgiveness. Misa also needs tshuva. If a person dies because of his sins and he never returns because of it, he hasn't accomplished anything either. So even Misa has to have tshuva. So what's the answer of he, Thomas, let him die and that'll take care of the problem? It doesn't. Let's go further. God asks, then the question is asked of the Torah. Torah, what do you say is the lot of the one that sins? And the answer that comes back is, let him bring a sacrifice. I mean, the Torah tells us to do tshuva. Why couldn't the Torah say, let him do tshuva? The same way God answered, let him do tshuva and he'll be forgiven, the Torah that has the mitzvah of tshuva written into it could tell, say the same answer, let him do tshuva. Instead, the Torah says, let him bring a sacrifice. A sacrifice doesn't help with tshu- without tshuva either. So what's the answer of the Torah? So what's happening here in the Gemara? The answers of prophecy and the answers of Torah to the lot of the sinner seem to be awkward answers. The only one that seems to make any sense is the answer that God gives. And the question is, why couldn't prophecy say that answer since prophecy always asked us of that? And why can't the Torah say that answer since ultimately that is the only answer? So the answer that's given to this is that there was no question in the mind of prophecy and in the mind of Torah that the lot of the one that makes a mistake is that he should do tshuva. But the question was what will be, what will be with the soul of the person that sins? That was the question. If you look carefully at the question and answer of the Yerushalmi the response that prophecy gives is nefesh he tamus the soul must die and the Torah gives the answer nefesh yavi carbon let the soul bring a sacrifice and it will atone the soul so what do I mean by this what I mean by this is like this they knew that there's such a thing as tshuva but the idea was that they only thought that tshuva is a dimension that removes the, the punishment. It's on the level of kapara. It takes away the debt. It takes away the first level of accountability. They never knew that tshuva can reach the point of recreating the soul of man. That it can give back to the, to the human being a soul without handicap. That it can give back to the person a heart that's sensitive to spiritual values. That second level of tshuva they groped for an answer. And the Navi said, the soul has no atonement without a process of leaving this world. 
And the Torah says that the soul cannot rebuild itself without the process of sacrifice. And the truth of the matter is that they are both right. If it were only up to us, we would only be able to accomplish with our tshuva forgiveness on the first level. The accomplishment of being able to rebuild the spiritual pool, the accomplishment of being able to become spiritually sensitive again as if nothing happened, is a gift that God gives us when we do our best. That's God's gift. The way the Rabbi Yonah says it in the beginning of in his introduction to the laws of tshuva, the Rabbi Yonah says, the Yechadish Bikirbam Ruach Tahara, that God will well up in the heart of the Balchuva a spirit of purity, Kasher Enyativa Masegas, which is not within their normal natural grasp to, to be able to get. So the answer is the truth of the matter is recreation of spiritual values, and like nothing ever happened, that's really not part of the essential mechanism that I can create it with my Chuva. I do my best. And then HaKadosh Baruch Hu gives me a gift and says that I will do the rest for you and I will give you back a soul as if it was never blemished. And I will give you back a heart as if no layers of thick hide were ever put on it. And you'll be as sensitive and able to grow as you were when, before you did anything wrong. This is what the Yerushalmi means when the Yerushalmi says that prophecy and Torah within the normal ways and within the normal mechanisms, even the spiritual mechanisms of a human being, there is no way of recreating those lost items. It is only HaKadosh Baruch Hu that can answer and say, I'll take care of it. Until one asks, until the question is presented to God and God says, let him do tshuva, and I'll take care of the rest. I'll make sure to give him back the gift of purity. He does his part, and then I'll give him back the gift of purity. This is what it's meant when the Prophet tells us, Shuva el Hashem, return to God, Shuva Alechem, and then I will return to you. What is this supposed to mean? If we return to God, what does God have to return to us for? So in the normal circumstances, if you go visit somebody, he doesn't have to come visit you, you're visiting. So, what it, so under normal circumstances this is defined to mean that if I'll come back then, then God will give me back all the things that I had before that I lost as a punishment. But now we understand a little bit deeper what it means. Come back to God in the best way that you can come back. And then God will come back to you and give you back things that you lost that you're not capable of recreating. But God will give them back to you. The Ashuva Aleichem. And I will come back to you and give you back those things that are not within your natural ability to ever reach again because of what you've done in your past. Those things will be given back. This is why in our literature, especially in the Medrash, we talk about tshuva and tshuva is defined as the person becoming a beria chadasha, a new human being. In fact, for Santa Monica, I could say this Medrash the Medrash says that there are certain angels that God makes them go through rivers of fire to recreate them at different points in their lives. And the same Medrash says that the soul of the Balchuva visits the same river of fire and is recreated into a new human being. This is what the Medrash says. 
clear enough it, it is that tshuva is a phenomenon of recreation. Now if tshuva would only be that first level of forgiveness, it doesn't follow that the person becomes a berya chadasha. You're saying that he has something against them, he's got ten years against him, if the law will ever catch up with him, they'll throw him into the clink for ten years, and I beg and I borrow and I plead, and they say, we'll drop your sentence. Dropping a penal code, dropping a punishment sentence, doesn't say anything about becoming a new human being. If we see that tshuva is defined as becoming a new human being, that's because there's a second, deeper aspect to tshuva. That being the level of purity, the level of tahara, the level of being able to regain spiritual potential that was lost, spiritual sensitivity that dulled itself and I lost its wavelength and I couldn't sense it anymore. This is what's meant when the Maimonides in a very beautiful way and I'll quote the words of Maimonides <coughs> Maimonides says that when a person does a true tshuva he looks at himself and he says the following thing lo and behold emesh yesterday yesterday I was despised and I was hated in God's eyes meshukets disgusting distanced and, and just totally unloved, uncared. And today that I've done tshuva, I know that I am loved, and I am desirable to God, and I am close to God, and I'm a friend of God. That phenomenon of the difference has nothing to do with forgiveness. If I did something wrong and somebody would say, for that you belong in prison for three years, and then I begged him, please drop the sentence, I don't become an ohuv to him. I don't become love to him and his friend and desirable to him. I, the person drops the sentence. The description that Maimonides gives us about Tshuva, realizing that today he's ohuv v'nechmad v'noyim v'yedid, all these terms of love and deep relationship, is because of the second aspect of tshuva. The aspect of tshuva that recreates the human being and gives him that state of purity. Chasidish Esvarim, you'll excuse my talking about Chasidish Esvarim, but I got some Chasidish blood in me. Chasidish Esvarim say the way they define the epitome of tshuva is at the point when the person realizes that he has no place. He has no place left. He looks at his life and he says to himself, boy, I'm so off base, I don't know where I am. He, has no, he doesn't feel that he has a place. He doesn't feel that he has a place. He's lost focus, he's lost direction, he's lost control. What am I doing here? What's, what's the purpose of this whole thing? Interestingly enough, the response to that kind of a feeling on the Balchuva's part is immediately after Yom Kippur God says to the Balchuva, I will make a place for you and me together, the sukkah. But the concept of the tshuva is that the person doesn't feel a makam. Now, if tshuva would only be a way of accomplishing forgiveness, going back again to defining the two levels of tshuva, 
why would it necessitate that the person feels that he doesn't have a place? I've got a place, but I've got a punishment to deal with. Will I be able to convince the sheriff to get rid of the punishment? Oh, I'm sorry, it's God, it's not the sheriff. Will I be able to convince him to drop the sentence, or will I not be able to convince him to drop the sentence? But if we see that the highest level of tshuva is where the person feels he has no place, what we're really saying is that the, the Baal Tshuva comes to the point of saying that I've damaged my spiritual pool, I've lost spiritual sensitivity, where's my place without those things? Without, without a pair of pants, where am I? Without potentials, without enough food to feed myself, where am I? I have no place. That's only a dimension that comes into play if we understand that tshuva goes deeper and it speaks of the recreation of essential spiritual elements of the person. Let's go further and let's give another example of the same idea. I'm just trying to bring together as many of these ideas that show the difference of the level of kapar and the level of tahara. Rebbe Kiva, very famous, even a song was made up all about it, Amar Rebbe Kiva. Rebbe Kiva says the following thing, Ashrechem Yisrael, praised are the Jewish people, let's say, Miatem Taharim, in front of who do you go through your process of purity? Umi Metaher Eschem, and who gives you that purity? Avichem Shabashamayim, your Father in Heaven. This is what Rebbe Kiva says, praised is the Jew, that in front of who does he engage in his process of becoming pure, and who purifies him other than his Father in Heaven? What is Rebbe Kiva teaching us? What Rebbe Kiva is teaching us is that Jew, the Jew is very lucky. Why is he lucky? Because his process of trying to become pure is one that God says, listen, I'm not interested. Clean up your own mess and when it's all cleaned up, come to me. That's not the case. Ashrechem Yisrael praised the, the, the Jew that once the Jew says, I'm in search of purity, God says that's the most beautiful thing that I can see. I want that it should happen in front of me. I'd like to see that. I want to see it. Know that you shouldn't think of yourself that in your endeavors to find purity that God says, well, when you're all cleaned up, I'll look at you. It's not that way. Every lick away, every wipe away, every level of cleanliness that's accomplished in the process of tshuva is fondled in God's heart. But then Rebbe Kiva ends off, Umi Metair Eschem. And who gives you that purity? Your Father in Heaven. Now, we just got finished saying, in front of who are you engaged in, your, in becoming pure? So who's doing it? You're doing it. And then a moment later, Rebbe Kiva says, Umi Metair Eschem. And who's giving you your purity? Avicham Shabashamayim. Your Father in Heaven. Well, who's doing it? Are you doing it? Or is God doing it? The answer is that we search for the purity. We ask for the purity. We do what's within our capacity. But ultimately, purity is a gift. God gives you that purity. When the person does what he can to search and get to that point of purity, that there's a Father in Heaven that wants to give it back to you. It's not the sheriff. It's not the defense attorney. It's not a prosecution lawyer. After everything is said and done, it's Avicham Shabashamayim. It's your Father in Heaven that wants you to have it. And when you do what you can to ask back for it, there's an Avicham Shabashamayim that wants to give it to you.
and he'll give it to you. Avichem Shabashamayim, it's a father that wants to give that present back to you. <coughs> then Rabbi Kiva goes on and says for more. And Rabbi Kiva says, Ve'omer. And I want to tell you something else. Mikve Yisrael Hashem. That the Jew, in his purity, by God, on Yom Kippur, is like a mikveh. What does that mean? So Rabbi Kiva explains. Ma mikveh metayres hatmeya. In the same way that a mikveh purifies those that are impure, because they've come in contact with things that make them impure, so too God makes the Jew pure. Now, what have we learned more from this second statement? Do we know how a mikvah makes a person pure? Seemingly not. Maimonides says very clearly that it's a chok. That it's one of those things that the human mind within its human limitations cannot understand how it works. So in order to clarify the purity of Yom Kippur, we make a comparison to yet another thing that we don't know how it works. What have we accomplished with that? So there are two answers to this. The first answer is that while we don't know to the nth degree how the mikvah works, the Chinuch does say a partial concept in the mikvah. And he says that when a person goes into a mikvah to become pure, and he goes under the water what he should envision is that this is what the world looked like before man was created. As if to say to himself that God is giving me the opportunity to start over again from the beginning of creation. In other words, I am getting the opportunity if I am willing to cut myself off from whatever I was in contact with, I am getting the opportunity to start over from the beginning of creation. The water, going under the water, is the visual aid and mental catalyst for the person to understand that there are times in one's life that one has to start from the beginning. When the person is willing to let go and start from the beginning, that's the condition of purity. That allows the gift of purity to start. If a person is stubborn says, I'm staying where I am, slight modifications, but I'm staying where I am, it becomes very difficult for the gift of purity to come into the person. But when the person is ready to say, listen, I'm ready to start over from the beginning point, from the starting line, and everything that I thought was who knows what, I'm ready to put that aside and start from the beginning and get an even crack at it and a fair chance at it again, that's the point where the person gets the gift of purity. That's in, on one level. That's the concept of Beria Chadasha. That's the concept of becoming a new person. The concept of becoming a new person begins with a person's wanting to be a new person. And the concept of the mikveh brings across that idea. Just like the mikveh is the concept of the world before man came in it. Ruach alekim The Spirit of God was just ho- hovering over the waters. So too, the mikvah puts that into the mind of man that there come times where I've got to start from the beginning. But there's yet a deeper concept to the comparison of the mikvah and its purity to the Val Tshuva. And again, Chassidah Shesvarim say it in the following way. The law of a mikvah is that if one 
single solitary part of the human being, nail, hair, finger, whatever it might be, is outside of the mikveh, the person is not pure. He can soak in it for three days, but if there's one hair of his body that's outside of the water of the mikveh, he's not pure. He hasn't accomplished purity. And the Svarim HaKadoshim say that it is the same thing, that the Balchuva has to be totally immersed in a total return to God in order that the day of Yom Kippur should give him purity. Now, I want to explain that because that's a, that's a big statement. Let me explain it. There are Yud Gimel Midos Shal Rachman. And that's such a big statement that the rest of the class is going to have to explain it. The Yud Gimel Midos Shal Rachman. There are 13 attributes of compassion that we say numerous times in our praise of forgiveness beginning four days before Rosh Hashanah straight through Ne'ilah of Yom Kippur. They start off with Hashem, Hashem, God, God, Kel Rachum V'chanun, a God of mercy and compassion, Erech HaPayim, who holds back His wrath, Rav Chesed, and tremendous loving kindness. There's a list of 13 attributes of mercy and compassion. Let's go through a number of them. The first two, Hashem, Hashem, that sounds like a redundancy. God, God. That's all we're saying. So the Talmud comes along and says it's two attributes of God's compassion. One is God's compassion, kodem sheyechta, before the person sins. Even before the person sins, man needs a lot of mercy and compassion, which is a discussion for itself. And then the second Hashem is the God of compassion after the person sins and does tshuva. This is the way the Talmud says it. Hashem, the first God, it's the same God, but the first mention of God is the God before the person sins. The second Hashem is the God after he sins and does tshuva. Okay, not bad. That already tells us that in God's name of Hashem, it is already told to us the compassion of, of accepting the Baal tshuva. A little bit later on in the attributes of compassion, we have the nake, and God wipes away. The nake, he wipes away. And then a little bit further on, it says, velo yinake, and he won't wipe away. So the Talmud says, let's make up our minds. Will he wipe away or won't he wipe away? So the Talmud's answer is, menake shavin. he wipes it away for those that return to him. The enem menake, and he doesn't wipe it away, lisha enem shavin. So the morale has a question. The morale says that when it says Hashem, Hashem, we've already been taught, we've already been taught that God accepts the Balchuva. The same God that dealt with the human being before he ever did anything wrong is the same God that will deal with the human being after he does Tshuva. We don't even change the name. It's the same Hashem. Hashem, Hashem. The God before the person sinned the God after the person sins and he returns. It's the same God. You can make your same connections as, as if you never sinned. So we know that God is accepting the Baal Tshuva. Later on it says that God wipes away all the bad things that the Baal Tshuva did. How is that different than the Hashem Hashem at the beginning? So the morale's answer to this is the following thing. Were the 13 attributes of compassion only to have Hashem Hashem in them and it wouldn't say later on, Vinake la yinake. 
there would be a demand that when a person does tshuva, he would have to do a total tshuva. Which means that if he knew that he did ten things wrong, he would have to do tshuva on all ten. Would he only do tshuva on five and say, listen, five of them bother me, five of them I couldn't care less about. Take five and be happy, God. Right? It wouldn't be tshuva. Why? Because after all, let's understand, tshuva is returning to God, rebuilding a relationship. So you get into a bang-up fight with somebody and he's got three things against you. So you come back and say, listen, I want to have a warm and meaningful relationship with you, but I am only willing to correct one of the wrongs that I did. Seemingly, it doesn't make any kind of sense. If you want the relationship to really come back as it was before, you have to deal with the whole spectrum. Whatever the problems were, you have to deal with each one of the problems. So were it only for the fact that it says Hashem Hashem, God, God, we would say that the only kind of tshuva that's acceptable and appropriate is the one that I can now stand in front of God in the same way that I stood in front of Him before I sinned. Hashem Hashem. The God before the sin, the God after the sin, they have to be the same. And therefore I have to have a tshuva of everything in order to come back to what I was before. God's compassion goes so far that God will forgive you with your tshuva on what you did do tshuva and he won't forgive you on the things that you didn't do tshuva. In other words, God will take a partial tshuva as well. A tshuva on some parts and not a tshuva on other parts. God God can look at you and say, this I'll wipe away, this I won't. Why? Because this you did tshuva, this you didn't do tshuva. In other words, a partial tshuva is also acceptable. But that only came into being because of that new attribute which is called v'nake lo yinake. Because of that new attribute. So the Svarim explained the following thing. When we're dealing with the first dimension of tshuva which is kapara, which is forgiveness, that you won't be punished, that's where there's the distinction and I can say that a partial tshuva will take off partial punishment. And there's no conflict Involved. In other words, if you're only dealing with the level of tshuva, if you're only dealing with the level of tshuva of removing punishment for wrongdoings, so I might have ten things against me, each one has a punishment, I'll deal with five, and I'll ask for forgiveness for five. But the day of Yom Kippur is not only a day of the first level tshuva. The day of Yom Kippur is a day in which we want to stand in front of God in purity and be able to make all the connections and bridges without any mechitzas, without any walls between us. That demands a tshuva of Hashem Hashem. That demands a tshuva that I look at the entire spectrum. And that's the comparison to the mikvah. Just like the mikvah doesn't descend upon the person uh, purity unless he's totally immersed in the mikvah, and if he leaves out part from the experience of immersion, it doesn't work. The purity, the second level of tshuva, which is to accomplish the purity, the lifnei Hashem titaru, that only works if the person approaches tshuva as the person approaches a mikvah. Get into it completely. Immerse yourself completely. Now, chances are that I haven't made anything better for anybody in this room. Because what I've just said now is that the higher level that we've discussed in terms of purity demands an attitude of jumping totally in. Gee whiz, this is not practical. This is not real. Come on, what do you want from me? 
in Judaism there's a rule, the Torah talk, that Gemara talks about it a lot. Tafasta marubalai tafasta. Don't grab too much because you might be left with nothing. Tafasta mua tafasta. Grab a little bit less that you're certain that you can hold on to than grabbing more that you know that you, you, you doubt if you can hold on to it at all. So here I sit here on a fine Tuesday evening and everybody thinks that they're moving along in some direction of tshuva and I throw this blooper out that the experience of that level of tahara which means so much to all of us and ultimately that's what we wait for Yom Kippur for because the first level of tshuva we can have all year long tshuva is not designated only to the day of Yom Kippur the tshuva of forgiveness for punishment that's a tshuva you can do 365 days a year the new dimension of purity, that's the experience of Yom Kippur. So here I sit here, Tuesday evening, a couple of days before Yom Kippur, and I tell you, forget it, boys. Nothing doing, unless you're ready to jump in completely and take and straighten out your entire life. The whole thing is wasted. It's like sitting, soaking in a mikveh with your pinky sticking out. I mean, is there any middle ground here? Is there any gray area that we can work with? Is there, What do I mean exactly? So let me put it this way. <coughs> it's going to be a very funny way of putting things, but it'll get the idea across. We have to go to something else. We have to go to Arambam. Maimonides in the Laws of Tshuva says a very interesting thing. Maimonides says, and I'm going to read the words of Maimonides to you. How great are the levels of tshuva of returning to God? Yesterday, before I returned to God, I was separated from Him entirely. Like it says in the verse, My sins separate me from the God of Israel. To the very presence of God. Okay, that's not bad. It's not dangerous. Very nice. Let's go further. Esmael, Maimonides says, Yesterday, Yesterday I could have screamed my guts out and prayed and prayed and prayed. And God answers nothing. Shenemar, like it says in the verse, Gamkisir Sarbut even if you pray in great amounts, I'm not listening. And today, now that I've done tshuva, I can call out, and God will respond immediately. Like it says in the verse, even before I call out to God, I will answer you. Also not terrible throws a chill through us in terms of sometimes the reason why maybe we don't get answered when we pray. But now let's go to the third one. Esmael, yesterday, yesterday this person was doing mitzvahs, and they were torn up in front of his face. Like it says in the verse, who asked you to do these mitzvahs? Ramais Pechatzerai. All you're doing is tearing, a court, tearing apart my courtyard. 
Mind you, this is what God is saying to the mitzvahs that the person does before he does tshuva. They are torn up in his face. Who asked you to mess up my courtyard? And today, and today those same mitzvahs are accepted with happiness. Like it says in the verse, God has found willingness and love in your actions. Needless to say, the third thing that the Maimonides says is terribly perplexing. Whatever a person is, and whatever a person does wrong, but the good things are good things. And we know that God's system of justice is not one like a credit sheet, where you balance things. You have X amount of minuses, certain amount of pluses, and then you balance it out. Are you in the minus or are you in the plus? It doesn't work like that. A person's mitzvahs are his pluses, his averuses are his minuses, and God deals with them on separate bases. His mitzvahs create spiritual growth and spiritual reward. His averus create a certain amount of negative development, and God deals with it, detoxifies the person, cleanses the person through different processes. But it's never like a sheet where God says, okay, you did five mitzvahs, each one was worth 50 points, so you have 250 points. But you did three averus, and they were real humdickers, and they're, they're tar- bullseyes, and they're worth 100 points each. So you're 300 in the red, take off 250, you're minus 50, and to hell with you. It doesn't work that way. The mitzvahs are mitzvahs, and the averus are averus. If that's true, how do we understand what Maimonides says? If we take the mitzvahs and we tear them up in front of your face. Who asked you to do mitzvahs? You're tearing apart my courtyard. Who needs it? What is that supposed to mean? There's a similar perplexing idea in, in the Rabbeinu Yonah. The Rabbeinu Yonah who wrote the work on tshuva, the famous work on tshuva, and really it's not his own, the particular thing that I'm going to refer to. It comes from a Gemara where the Rabbeinu Yonah speaks about one of the beautiful things of the Baal Tshuva. And again, he says the following thing. He says that when the Baal Tshuva returns to God, all the extinguished candles and lights of his mitzvahs are rekindled. This is the language of the Rabbeinu Yonah. A person does mitzvahs, he does averus, the averus extinguish the lights of his mitzvahs, so a person can think that even if he does tshuva, he's just got to start over again. So the Rabbeinu Yonah says, no. When the person does tshuva, all the mitzvahs that he did that had extinguished lights because of the averis that he did, now that he does tshuva and the avera goes away, the transgressions go away, the mitzvahs shine up again. And he brings a verse for that. He says, Kaltisa avain, once the person accomplishes it that God forgives his sin, you can cash in on all the good things that you did up to this point that were meaningless up to this point and weren't lighting for you in any way. And again, we have the same question. Maimonides is talking about the future activities. Before you return, it's all torn up. When you return, it's accepted in happiness. The Rabbeinion is saying the same idea, but he's saying it in the past. When you become a Baal Tshuva, all the extinguished candles of mitzvahs are rekindled. And you don't start off at bottom zero. You start off with all your mitzvahs without any Averis. But again, the idea that in some way the Avera extinguishes the mitzvah. 
Now this is something that needs to be dealt with. What is this supposed to mean? But before we deal with that, let's just point out one other thing. And this is a little bit technical, but important to explain. <clears throat> when a person modifies his behavior, when a person modifies his behavior, there are different levels of modification. For instance, if a person is a goslin, if a person is a, a thief, he steals. So the Talmud says that other than he, the fact that he owes something to the fellow and that he's transgressed something of the Torah, he is also labeled a Russia. He is labeled to be a bad person in regards to the laws of testimony and taking an oath. In other words, if a person is known to be a goslin, to be a thief, he will never be accepted in a court of law as a witness to any kind of a thing. He can scream from today till tomorrow. He's disqualified. Why? So the Talmud says, Russia atta. You are, in a certain part of your life, a Russia, a bad person, and it disqualifies you from saying testimony. It disqualifies you from taking an oath that we will accept that after you make the oath it's true. What we'll say is that the same way you steal, you swear falsely too. Now, the Talmud says that when a person becomes a thief and he can't say testimony, which is called pasuliatus, and he can't take an oath, that's not a condition for the rest of his life. If he can prove that he's changed his ways and he doesn't steal anymore, then he can regain his qualification as a witness. Now, regaining the qualification to be a witness or to take an oath does not need the entire gamut of tshuva. The, the critical components of tshuva are regret, confession, and a commitment for the future. Those are the three critical components. The person that wants to regain his qualification to be a witness does not need all three. What he basically needs is only a commitment in the future never to do it again. That's all he needs. He doesn't need confession and regret. So to remove the name Russia, it's enough to break with your past and not to continue doing it in the future. But for forgiveness, you need all three critical components of tshuva. And sometimes even those three critical components of tshuva are not enough until you have Yom Kippur that gives you that higher level of purity. So what I've just defined for you is that there are like three levels in return. There's the level of return which will qualify you as a witness. There's yet the next level of return that gives you forgiveness. And then there's yet a higher level that tshuva itself with all its components is still not enough without a sacrifice where a sacrifice applies or without Yom Kippur where Yom Kippur applies. Now, the question that I have is the following one. When Maimonides says that the mitzvahs are torn up in your face and you're asked, who asked you to mess up my courtyard? Or when the Rabbeinu Yonah says that the lights of the mitzvahs are rekindled, which one of these three levels is necessary? Is it enough to just change your ways do you need the second level of the three critical components of tshuva or do you have to go full swing and possibly even have Yom Kippur or a sacrifice or what's necessary to have total forgiveness for the particular crime? Well, if Maimonides puts the concept of mitzvahs being torn up in a person's face in the laws of tshuva, it's rather obvious that Maimonides is telling us that you need that second level. It's not enough that you remove from yourself the disqualification of being a Russia 
and not being able to say testimony. It's also not necessary to reach the higher levels of the sacrifice or the Yom Kippur that might be necessary to have total forgiveness. What you need is straight down the middle. Shuvah with its three critical components. And my question is, how did the Rambam make that selection? If I would have been a nice guy, I would have said it's enough that he, he removes from himself the name Russia. Just as long as he takes off himself the disqualification of being the Russia, he's already trusted, he can say testimony, he can take an oath. Why shouldn't that be enough? Why shouldn't that be enough that we don't tear his mitzvahs up in his face? So what will you argue? You'll argue that it's not enough because it's not a total forgiveness. But Maimonides doesn't say that you need the total forgiveness of the sacrifice or the Yom Kippur. Maimonides stops and Maimonides says the tshuva with its three critical components is enough. In other words, there are some times where tshuva, even, even tshuva alone is not enough. You need the experience of Yom Kippur or a carbon or a sacrifice. But Maimonides doesn't say that you need that in order that God doesn't tear up the mitzvahs. And taking away the name of Russia, that's not enough. It's straight down the middle. Tshuva with its three critical components. Where is that arbitrary decision? How is that arbitrary decision being made? The fact that I take off the disqualification of, of not being able to say testimony, that's not enough. My mitzvahs will still be torn up. The mitzvahs will still not light up in the face of the Averas. Do I have to go full swing and wait for Yom Kippur and wait for the sacrifice if that's what the crime needs? No. But tshuva is what I need. Where does the Ramam come to decide that it's tshuva, nothing less and nothing more, that this experience of tearing up doesn't occur? <coughs> well, in a basic way, if you look at the Machser of Yom Kippur, there's in the list of confessions, I'm sure you're aware of the fact that the confessions are very beautifully structured with the Aleph Bays. You got something to confess with the Aleph, and you have something to confess with the Bays. You have the entire Aleph Bays. And under the pay of the confession, one of the things is Prikas O, which means throwing off the yoke of your commitment and your obligation to God. Prikas O. Now, under normal circumstances, Prikas O, under normal circumstances, Prikas O is usually the end result of an apikairis. A person gets to the point that he claims, or at least he thinks that he claims, that he doesn't believe in God. It's all nonsense. Torah never came down. If God was around, he certainly died since then. He denies the existence of God and God's involvement in the world. And if he's not around, so why should I be carrying around any obligation to a God that doesn't exist? But that is not the definition of prikas o when we go like this, We are not dealing with our accusing ourselves of being an apikairis and not believing in God. So what does prikas o mean? So simply we could say that prikas o means my neglect of my obligation. Not a theological rejection of my obligation, but my, my realistic negligence towards my obligation. Something to the point that if I continuously do something that I'm not allowed to do, 
it comes to a point where I feel it's permissible to do and I don't feel any guilt or any consciousness about it or any, any obligation to rectify my ways. And to a certain degree, in that area of my life, I've thrown off my sense of obligation. That would be defined as precus O in the simplest level. This is not talking about the Apicarus. In fact, the Apicarus has a much more intricate way of returning to God. Because in Proverbs it says, Those that enter into the realms of Apicarus do not return to God in the normal ways of tshuva. Tshuva is possible. There is nothing that tshuva is not possible for. But the machzer that we have with the alchets is not for that kind of a fellow. And it's not for us. So what does it mean? So this is something that I never knew. But Rabbi Yisrael Salanta, who is most probably the father of the Musser movement, says the following thing. It's based on a Gemara, which I'm not going to trouble you with this evening. But there's a Gemara that says that Greater is the spiritual reward of the one that is required and obligated to do than the one that is not obligated to do and nonetheless does. We spoke about this in the first class, JT14, when we were going through the reason why a person should do mitzvahs. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta, and the obvious question is that if I'm doing it even without being required to do it, I really deserve a pat on the back. Why should my reward and my spiritual growth be less than the one that's required to do it? I'm doing it without being asked to do it. That's the classical question. And Rabbi Yisrael Salanta has a very interesting answer. Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says that the entire difference in the spiritual growth and reward of the one that's required to do is because he lives constantly with the worry and the concern that he should do what's right to do and do what he's obligated to do. In other words, being that I am required to do this mitzvah, being that I'm required to stay away from this wrong thing, I always have to live with the concern, will I get the mitzvah done? Will I be strong enough to stay away from what I've been instructed to stay away from? For the additional concern and worry and always being nervous and concerned, it is for that that I deserve the greater spiritual reward and ultimately I develop spiritually greater because the concern and the worry that goes into being good is in and of itself a contributor to spiritual growth and reward. This is what Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says. Which is interesting because we always think that what we get rewarded for is the mitzvahs. The amount of nervous condition and worry that we have is circumstantial to the experience. But Rabbi Yisrael Salanta says it's not. It's the entire difference in the growth of the person that's required and the person that's not required. But Rabbi Yisrael goes on and Rabbi Yisrael says, therefore, if a person does not worry and is not concerned about his mitzvahs and averis, and he just, come what may, I'll deal with everything as it comes up. If it'll work out that I'll do the mitzvah, fine. If it won't work out, I'll give a chuckle and I'll say, maybe next time. If an Avera comes up, I won't be forewarned and worry about it and try to avoid it. Come what may, whatever will be. If I'll have the strength of dealing with it, I'll deal with it. And if I won't, I'm not going to drive myself crazy. I don't have to land up in a shrink's office. I'll, I'll, I'll take it as it comes along. 
So Rabbi Yisrael says, if that's the person's attitude, that whatever I do is just a cherry on top and I deserve a pat on the back because I'm a swell guy. And where I do fail, no, well, that's all part of life. And you know, But there's no real concern of carrying the burden. Then it's conceivable that even though you are required to do those mitzvahs, you won't receive the rewards of a person that was required to do the mitzvahs. Because that dimension of your connection to the mitzvahs doesn't exist in your life. So the fact that in the end you got them done, you know, they just went by you and you did them, you know, without any particular concern or anything, it doesn't mean anything. Because you never put that into it, and if you never put it into it, you don't deserve to get it out. This is what Rabbi Yisrael says. So what Rabbi Yisrael is basically saying is that it's conceivable for a person never to do an Aveira, and to do all the mitzvahs, and that he won't get the spiritual growth of a person that was required to do the mitzvahs. It's possible. Why? Because his attitude is Torah and mitzvahs are great if you can do them. And whenever I'll get an opportunity, I'll do it. But I'm not going to drive myself crazy and say it must be and it's awful if it doesn't get done and I'm missing so much and there's so much opportunity missing. And if the person doesn't feel a sense of tremendous obligation, so then what you put in is what you get out. This is the deeper definition of Prikas Ol. The deeper definition of Prikas Ol is where a person says, I'll do mitzvahs, but don't throw this obligation stuff at me. I'll do it because it's beautiful. I'll do it because I like it. I'll do it because why not? But I don't feel at the same time that without it I'm a lost person. That without it my life is full of confusion. That without it, my life lacks focus. There's no urgency. That's the good word for it. There's no urgency in my, in my, in my, uh, in my observance. I don't feel that it's an issue of urgency. It's important. It's beautiful. It's lovely. It's meaningful. It's inspirational. But it's not urgent. As long as the person doesn't feel both parts of the spectrum, both the greatness of mitzvahs, and how much I'm missing and in terms of focus and direction and purpose and meaning without it, without having both sides of the coin, one is lacking in the kabbalas o, in the acceptance of the, uh, of the, of the obligation. That's prikaso, that's throwing off the obligation. Let's give an example of this. The second portion of Kriyashma is classified as the portion that deals with accepting upon oneself the yoke of mitzvahs. What does it say? If I will do all the mitzvahs, the rain will come in its time and all the things will grow and everything will be fine and happy and you'll eat and your animals will eat and you'll bench and... Fine. And then it says, and if you won't do the mitzvahs of the Torah and the skies will become copper and the earth will become lead and a whole to do. So normally, how do we explain this? We say like this. If I will do the mitzvahs means if I will accept the obligation of doing mitzvahs. And what's the second half? And if I won't accept the obligation of mitzvahs, this is what's going to happen. That's wrong. Both parts of doing and not doing are both not the question of, of if the person is accepting or not. The person is accepting to do the mitzvahs. But accepting to do the mitzvahs means that the person has to have the picture of the blessing of doing the mitzvahs and the absence of blessing that li- exists in not doing the mitzvahs. 
And both pictures, the picture of blessing if I do the mitzvahs, and the picture of the lack of blessing if I don't do the mitzvahs, they're both parts of the component of accepting that obligation. In other words, feeling how lucky I am that I have the mitzvahs, and how unlucky would I be if I wouldn't have the mitzvahs, those are both part, both components of the acceptance of mitzvahs. That's the way you're supposed to think of the Kriyashma. The Kriyashma is not saying, if I'll accept the mitzvahs, and if I want. It's all acceptance. These are the two parts of acceptance. Now, <coughs> knowing this, knowing this, we have now a definition for what the Rambam says when the Rambam says that the mitzvahs are torn up in your face, or when the Rabbeinu Yonah says that the lights of mitzvahs are extinguished and only come back to light with tshuva. There's no question that when a person does a mitzvah, it's a tremendous thing, and he grows from it, and there's spiritual reward for it, and whatever he does in terms of averis is not in conflict with what he's done as a mitzvah. That's not the question. There's nothing in the averis that's uproots the mitzvah. There's no direct conflict of the Aveira to the mitzvah. That's not the question. That's not the point here. The point over here is that what a mitzvah does is that it makes the person into a different person. Part of how the mitzvah affects the person and makes the person into a different person is because of the sense of obligation that is connected to this mitzvah the oath that's connected to the mitzvah. The fact that I'm tied to this mitzvah because it's a, it's a situation of blessing and not doing it will create confusion and torment in my life and a lack of focus. That connection and sense of obligation to the mitzvah is what opens me up to receive the entire light of the mitzvah. This is what opens up God to accepting the mitzvah with happiness. Because behind the mitzvah is a concerned individual that wants to reach God and cares to reach God. When the person then goes ahead and does an Avera, he's not taking away the mitzvah, but he's definitely diminishing the sense of obligation in his connection to God. Why? Because the mitzvah that he did, he did with a sense of obligation. There's blessing in doing it and there's a lack of blessing in not doing it. And I'm doing it with that urgency. When I go immediately ahead and I do an Aveira, well, if I really sense that urgency and I was preserving that sense of urgency of the mitzvah, how did I do an Aveira a moment later? Obviously, not in the mitzvah itself, but in the urgency and in the sense of obligation, it has been mitigated by the fact that I went ahead and I did an Aveira afterwards. So, the mitzvah is there, but how the mitzvah can affect me and change me I've locked myself out of that because by the averis that I've done, I've weakened the sense of urgency in total that I have towards my mitzvahs. Now, let me ask you one question. If that's the concept of an avera being in conflict with the mitzvah, not that it's in conflict with what the mitzvah accomplishes per se, that it knocks off the mitzvah, it's a checkmate on the mitzvah, but what that it does is it ruins the 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 connection and the obligation that went into the mitzvah, if that's what it is, let's ask ourselves the following question. Which mitzvah in the Torah does not have the possibility of being a mitzvah that's done 
because it's beautiful but not without a sense of urgency there's only one mitzvah that can't fall into that trap and that's the mitzvah of tshuva because tshuva is the only mitzvah that only begins when the person that's returning feels to a certain degree a sense of urgency that a change has to be made the only mitzvah in the Torah that only begins with the sense of urgency for change is the mitzvah of tshuva therefore the Rambam says that when the person does tshuva not when he removes the name of Russia and not when he has the total level of forgiveness but at the moment that he feels the sense of urgency to approach the three critical components of tshuva he is now approaching God with a sense of urgency so now God says I will not tear up the mitzvahs anymore they will be accepted in totality because there's the urgency and there's the connection and the concern behind it all the mitzvahs that you never were able to benefit from because you never had that sense of urgency because of your averas now that you've expressed a movement in tshuva what has happened is that you've rekindled that sense of urgency and with it you've rekindled all those mitzvahs because why did the lights of those mitzvahs get extinguished? they became extinguished with the weakening of the sense of obligation and urgency at the moment that I proclaim that I, may, I want to make change and the change is urgent Alright? Why? I feel that it's bad and it's bitter that I've went, went, gone away from God. At that point, my whole connection to God is a different connection. Now I already feel an urgency. I already feel obligated by the nature of what Torah and mitzvahs are to do it. And by that, all the mitzvahs that I did now can run through me and light me up and help me grow spiritually because I've re-established my sense of urgency and concern for mitzvahs. To respond to the question that I asked before, tshuva on Yom Kippur has to be like a mikvah. Be practical. It's so difficult. We do our best, but aren't we asking for too much? Let's just say the following thing. Nobody changes every single thing overnight. But if we want to know what is the practical application of jumping into the mikveh and not leaving anything out, the practical application of that would be that my approach to Torah and mitzvahs is that it's a blessed state of life and without it my life is full of confusion. And there's a pressing need for me to learn and to learn and to change. And when the person has that approach, he has, in essence, accepted upon himself the totality of what Torah is. Not necessarily an actual practice that two minutes later he's doing all the mitzvahs. But he has accepted upon himself the urgency and obligation and everything follows from it. But that's where it starts from. And when we talk about jumping into the mikvah, what it means for me and you not for the great tzaddikim, but for us plain people, what it means is just to be able to stand in front of God knowing that my Torah and my mitzvah that you have given me are urgent needs. They're urgent needs because they're beautiful in their acceptance 
and their urgent needs because if I go away from them, my life is full of confusion, lack of focus, lack of purpose, all kinds of complexes, problems of image. I'm not happy, I'm not satisfied, I'm not fulfilled, whatever it might be. If that's the way I approach Yom Kippur, knowing that the issue is an issue of urgency, I've jumped into the mikvah completely. There's no part of me that's outside of the mikvah. I know that I need the whole thing. It's interesting. I don't know if I should say it's fortunate or unfortunate. But there isn't a problem that comes into my office. And this is not necessarily anybody's fault because people are unknowing of Torah and unknowing most often of the values of Torah and and certain directives and perspectives of Torah when they come into the office. But there isn't a problem that I've seen no matter what it is, in interpersonal relationships or, rela- or psychological problems of one's own or emotional problems, whatever the problem might be, that there isn't a response and there isn't a remedy and there isn't a refu in the Torah for it. There isn't. There's an answer in a mitzvah. There's an answer in a message of the Torah. There isn't a dimension of of, of any kind of a problem or confusion in a person's life that were he to investigate Torah and the mitzvahs that address that issue that he wouldn't find his freedom from those problems. If a person approaches Yom Kippur knowing that the Torah and the mitzvahs are in urgent need for me to be able to be what I'd like to be then he's jumped into the mikvah then he's asking and he's begging on the doors of purity. And when he asks and he begs on the doors of purity, God says, Lefnei Hashem Titaru. In front of me you will receive your purity. I will stop here.